Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Stephanie A. Malin and Megan Elizabeth Kalman, authors of Building Something Better, Environmental Crises and the Promise of Community Change, published this year by Rutgers University Press. Dr. Malin and Dr. Kalman, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. To start off, why don't you each tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Sure. This is Stephanie. I'll, I'll start first. Um, I'm an associate professor of sociology at Colorado State University, and I have been working in environmental justice, both through organizing and through my academic work since the early 2000s, not to not to date myself too much or anything. Um, and I study predominantly extractive communities. So where there's unconventional oil and gas production, uranium, mining and milling, that sort of thing going on. Um, and looking at the impacts to communities that host these activities um, from environmental justice implications to health outcomes and the outcomes of having a lot of deregulation in, in terms of environmental protection. Um, so writing this book was a nice change of pace because there's a lot of heavy, um, heavy work that's done with that and a lot of uh, focusing on the problems, right, and what's kind of wrong with the world around us, which we know those problems are abundant, but I really wanted to turn towards places that are building different systems, um, moving away from uh, these kind of capitalist systems that we have. And we found some great communities and organizations to help showcase some of those uh, very forward thinking kind of hopeful actions that are going on. Um, And this is Megan. I am on the faculty at the School for Global Inclusion and Social Development at UMass Boston. Um, Like Stephanie, I'm a trained sociologist, but my uh, my program is interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary, we call it. And I actually predominantly study organizations and organizing, or I have um, for for many years now. Uh, And I do that in part because it's really important to me to understand the mechanisms by which humans live in groups and then, you know, try to try to change uh, the institutions that govern our lives. And so I have typically looked at or formal organizations, informal organizations, social movements, sort of like the political ecology around uh, around social movements, around public organizations. And, um, and uh, I obviously have a climate and environment focus in, in a large chunk of my work, but this book was really um, a nice instance of Stephanie and I being able to bring our backgrounds together um, in order to do something, uh, do something a little bit different. Um, and, and like she said, uh, sociology um, and in general, the academic disciplines um, in the social sciences particularly have a really robust um, practice of critique, uh, which is great and also can be a little bit of a difficult starting place if people are looking for ways to actually engage the world. Um, and so we took a look around for groups and organizations that were modeling different ways of doing and different ways of being, and they became the foundation, the scaffolding for this book. All right. 
So one of the core concepts that you deal with in the book is neoliberalism. And you acknowledge in kind of the beginning of your uh, chapter on it that there's been what you call some semantic bleaching of that term. And I love that that expression, you know, because uh, the, that word gets used so much by so many people to mean so many different things. So can you tell us what you mean by neoliberalism and why you find that term still useful? Jeff, you want to take that? Yes, sure. Sorry, I didn't just <laughs> jump in first every time. Um, so yeah, neoliberalism is a, is a powerful term, right? But but as you mentioned, we observe how, especially in our teaching, we've experienced that it it's kind of the omnipresent critique, right? If something's wrong, it's because of neoliberalism. But we wanted to offer a really precise critique, which needs a precise definition, right, for what we're talking about. We talk about it in terms of ideologies and then the policy measures that are extensions of those ideologies. So neoliberal ideology centers, uh, of course, on free trade and free markets, right? Private property, free trade, free markets are kind of the centerpiece of neoliberal ideology, and from that, right, are these uh, these other kinds of ideologies like deregulation or re-regulation of the state, especially reducing environmental and labor protections, um, privatization of a lot of what we might call natural resources, what other cultural worldviews might look as, at as relations, right? So privatization of a, lo a lot of the public spaces and things that we might think of as more communal resources or spaces. But we also look at the... Um, policy measures that go along with that, right? So that actualize privatization and privileging private property and, and deregulation and re-regulation. Along with that is the cultural components, right? Um, the way that the kind of individual lens of neoliberalism really maps onto things like um, U.S. Uh, kind of uh, U.S. culture, right? In terms of picking ourselves up by our bootstraps, kind of this national myth that we have about um, individual level work gives you success, right? And if you're not successful, you just need to work a little harder. And how deeply embedded that is in in American worldviews, but many other worldviews as well. And so neoliberal cultural impacts have been really powerful and have been internalized um, as we. Uh, as we kind of see that individual level thinking being really empowered within that kind of context, right? So those were some of our main focal points. Um, the ideologies, how they become policies that are privileging private property and privatization and deregulation and really um, breaking down social safety nets, right? The cultural component is why do people um, buy into that, right? Or why do people support these kind of market-based solutions and privileging of markets above perhaps their own well-being or the well-being of their community? I, I guess I would add too that at the core, right, neoliberalism is really about the idea that the market should govern social, civic, uh, communal life rather than the other way around, right? And that is expressed as an idea as a series of ideologies, which then are further expressed as series of policies. Okay. And you even describe this neoliberal approach kind of taking over the mainstream environmental movement, that a lot of the ways that people approach environmental issues end up working under this neoliberal kind of way of thinking and doing policy. Uh, sorry, that was my phone. Uh, 
Uh, yes, absolutely. That's one of the things that happens when ideas become hegemonic, right? It becomes the water that we swim in, but we don't see. It's all around us. And it sort of infuses uh, language that's used to describe everything from like social movements to uh, to how much money somebody makes, right? You casually talk about somebody's net worth. Um, and and yes, I mean, this is, this is one of the functions of... Um, Excuse me, it's my my phone keeps this keeps digging. I don't know if you guys can hear that on that end. Um, that yeah, that it is it is one of the outcomes of of the neoliberalism having a hegemonic hold on the way that we think about our social, civic, and communal life, as well as just our economic one. And I'll, I'll just add really quickly too. I think part of what we we're trying to tackle in this book and with the cases that we're looking at is that the flip side of neoliberalism being so hegemonic, right, and so internalized is that when we start to try to identify what other systems might look like or what solutions might be, how to be actively hopeful, for example, I think it, especially in our teaching and in our community work, um, some of what we might hear from folks is that it almost seems too big to dismantle. Right. And and I think we're really wanting to push back against that narrative because inaction can be so tempting in the face of existential crises like climate change. And we're really trying to get across the point that, no, it can be addressed and dismantled. And, and this is how various organizations and communities are doing that work. And, and further, there is some interesting new workout from a, a newish field called climate psychology, what's being called climate psychology at the moment, um, which shows that, that basically the only way to combat climate grief is actually to do engaged work in some form, whether that's community organizing or, or political work or, or anything else, right? So, um, so action and engagement is at the individual levels, one of the most powerful antidotes to despair and paralysis. Um, but also that that paralysis has a political function too, right? When there are huge groups of communities that are groups of people, large communities that are feeling disengaged and disengaged, right? That makes it much easier uh, for powerful interests to sort of have their way with them, right? Um, and uh, and when there when there is no organizing and is no alternative visioning, um, it makes it much easier for the system in which we currently exist to, to just get stronger. Okay, so let's get into some of the case studies that you give about, you know, a different way to do things. And, and maybe the best way to do this is just to have you each pick out one or two favorites to kind of summarize for our, our listeners as an example of a, you know, a group or a movement that you think is pointing the way towards a, a better approach. Sure. This is Megan. I can start. Um, and, and I guess I would say too, that none of these groups are claiming to do it all right. They're, they're all sort of intervening in one part of life. Um, and so one of the groups that I, uh, feel one of the groups that is, is of great interest to me for a couple of different reasons, uh, is the group on, there's a section in the book that covers bands that are called honk bands, they're street bands. Um, and they really engage a couple of questions. One is what does common space look like, right? What does public space look like? And particularly in cities, how do we understand who has access to streets? Um, who has access to uh, methods of conveyance, modes of conveyance? Um, and, and this comes out of, I think, questions that environmental sociology is grappling with right now very fruitfully, uh, which is which is the question of also what nature looks like in cities, right? So there is a, a, a large percentage of the world's population are city dwellers. Um, that per percentage is 
projected to grow over the course of the next two decades. And so some of the things that we need to be asking ourselves is how do we relate to nature in the context of large built urban environments? And right, so these street bands uh, tend to play, they play for free, they play in the street, um, they often practice in the street. And so they have this really interesting engagement with um, who makes music? How do we relate to our audience? How, how do we relate to the built environment? They play music in gar- like big parking garages and on bridges and, uh, you know, standing on signs in public parks at the bus stop. Um, and so what does it look like to link human activity uh, with a human built environment with nature um, as exists as as it is expressed in in urban spaces um, and so there you know again this is a large network of bands one one characterization can't cover all of them um, but they do as a whole I think uh, provoke some really interesting questions about how communities can live well within cities um, engaging art engaging music engaging each other uh, in a way that is not commodified and that is public. Yeah, and, and this is Stephanie here. I think um, one thing to point out about the cases, right, before diving into an example is that uh, appropriate to this conversation about neoliberalism, we've tried to organize them according to how they're they're all kind of pushing back against different pillars of neoliberalism. Like Megan said, they're all doing multifaceted work and intervening in other ways. Um, but we were really looking at groups that are pushing back against individualization of environmental activism and building community and collective organizing around around these issues um, that are looking to fight the privatization of common spaces, right, and build communal spaces and kind of communal um stewardship of of more than humans of relations of other beings and then spaces that we're looking to build more distributive and regenerative systems that are looking to move away from kind of deeply market-based ethos of of neoliberal policies um so within that and kind of a suite of the cases that i want to highlight it's hard to pick um just a few we were really fortunate to be able to talk to some um groups that have gotten us start in native and indigenous communities or nations both in the u.s and elsewhere and are very lucky to be trusted to tell these stories in this book. And I think one that I really want to highlight is the Thunder Valley Community Development Corporation that is um, based on what is called the Pine Ridge Reservation, right? It's a... um, it's part of the Lakota Nation, and we did a, a couple of case studies, um, both around Cannonball, North Dakota, and the Indigenized Energy Cooperative. Um, it's a community solar farm that's owned one of the, I think it's the largest in North Dakota that was started by Cody Two Bears, but also um, deeply community-based and really part of a large community development kind of initiative. And then Thunder Valley Community Development Corporation, as I mentioned, um, Tatewi Means is is one of, she's the executive director and one of the visionaries behind that. Um, But these cases are so, illustrate so much how important youth are in communities and also how important youth organizing is. And that was a theme across many of these cases that we looked at. These two cases that I mentioned in particular are very youth focused and look at healing from settler colonialism and how that starts with individual healing and cultural and language immersion um, for children living in these communities, right? So kind of starting at that level and branching out to many other issues, including um, energy self-sufficiency, as as Cody would call would call things, um, looking at uh, food sovereignty, looking at how to 
reacquaint and decolonize um, cultural systems, kind of reacquaint those systems with um, pre-colonial kind of experiences and, and life ways that have been carried on. And and so these examples are so um, moving, I think, and so illustrate so forcefully how organizations and communities are already building better systems and how many times these systems are that they're building are tied to um they're tied to lifeways and cultural worldviews that have been around for centuries, if not millennia, and that preceded the settlement of the United States by Europeans, right? So that was something I felt was very, very fortunate to be able to share and be trusted with those stories in this book. Yeah, and I think your presentation of these different cases is it's framed in a very optimistic way and it's like really inspiring to read those sections of the book and in your introduction you describe this as like a deliberate choice to not take the kind of skeptical critical kind of mindset that uh, you often see in academic uh, work so can you talk a little bit about that you know more more optimistic framing and why you chose to to treat these cases that way. Um, yeah, I, uh, I want to give a little shout out to Rebecca Solnit here, who has my favorite framing of optimism and pessimism um, and, and a corresponding definition of hope. So she says, optimists believe that the world is going to be fine and we don't have to do anything about it. Pessimists believe the world is not going to be fine. Everything's terrible. We're ruined. Uh, and both groups excuse themselves from action because they believe that the future is sort of foretold or that the conclusion is foregone. And she says, so hope um, is an active process. Uh, and hope is this belief that what we do matters, even if we don't know to whom it's going to matter or even when it's going to matter. And the outcome is not foregone. We don't know if it's like if everything is going to be, quote, all right or not. But she thinks about hope and optimism as just as centered on engagement, right, and centered on doing. And so that that is a formulation that really guided our choice of case studies um, to this to this question about uh, about. Um, the, so in our in our book, we follow Peter Elbow and a number of other like a very long trajectory of of scholarship that engages what they call like believing, so like credulity, uh, and and the idea that that can be a sound methodological choice, so that by immersing yourself in the internal logic of whatever is going on, um, you can see that see its strengths, right? You can see um, an approach on its own terms, um, and and I guess I would link to something that we we had discussed at the outset of this interview, which is that when there is when critique is the only mode of engagement um, for research and otherwise, it becomes very difficult to maintain any kind of active hope. And again, hope in the sort of solnit sense that it's uh, that that something is worth engaging. Um, and every you know every possible outcome seems flawed. Why do anything at all? Because this is problematic and that is problematic, right? And so we chose um, we chose to profile and lift up the stories of groups who recognize that there are tensions in the work that they do that engage those tensions really specifically, really actively that sort of get into the trenches, um, look at the messiness, talk about the messiness, um, but in doing so still are able to move things forward. Yeah, I don't, I don't really know how much I have to add to that very eloquent uh, account of, of what we've done. But um, I, I think we were definitely trying to push back against, and remember we're teachers as well, right? So some of what we encounter in the classroom is hunger for learning about 
these sociological critiques of systems like neoliberal policy, right? But then this, at least in my teaching experience, I hit a wall with students about halfway through the semester where they are just paralyzed, right? And as Megan said, this this idea of hope, um, from, I, I also am a, a big fan of Rebecca Solnit's work, also bringing in Joanna Macy and Chris Johnstone and their ideas of active hope, um, really centering on action, right? And how we are in a unique time period to focus on how much there still can be done. And the, the tendency is to focus on what's happened, what's wrong, and why we can't possibly move forward thoroughly enough or quickly enough. Um, but that's paralyzing, right? And and that's where as teachers, I think there was kind of this urge to be able to talk about this in a way that was systematic and sociological, but also uh, deeply embedded in being human, right? And, and trying to figure out what is good that's going on, right? What is good enough that's going on and what can we learn from it? Yeah, so then... You know, you're both sociologists, um, and I'm not, but, you know, I know a bit about sociology. And uh, one of the bits of the book that uh, struck me as kind of the most sociological um, was you talk a bit about the, the distinction between organizing and organizations. Um, so I was wondering if you could elaborate on that distinction and, and how it plays into what some of these groups that you're talking about uh, do. Sure, I can take a stab at that one. Um, organizations, uh, m- when we say organization, we typically think of formal organizations. So this may be an organization that has a 501c3 status. It may be an organization that pays a person or people salaries. Um, and when you get into the world of mostly formal or semi-formal or formal organizations, um, there are a whole new set of pressures that are introduced, right? So for instance, if you are a registered nonprofit, then you have to do a certain number of legal things every year in order to keep that status and you need to raise money. And if you have a board of directors, uh, then the board of directors needs to raise money. If you have staff, you need to raise money to pay your staff. And then that fundamentally changes Um, the way that the group engages with the world, right? This is not always to say that that's bad, you know, bad in quotes. It's just to say that formal organizations um, face a great deal of pressure uh, and they have all these pressures that are sort of acting on them. And it tends to, the literature has shown, tends to sort of dampen uh, groups critique. Um, And the more formal they are and the more people that they hire, the less likely they are to engage in some sort of profound structural critique about whatever their environment is, whether that's the state or local or, you know, particular fight over particular extractive industry or anything like that. Um, So organizations can be really stable foundations for important stuff, right? When you you have the ability to pay someone to do full-time organizing, then you have someone who gets to organize for 40 hours a week. That's awesome. Um, But there are drawbacks and consequences to that as well. including sort of what you're allowed to say based on the status of your organization, um, you know, who you're going to, who you're going to upset, all of that kind of thing. Um, Organizing, uh, the distinction that that we're sort of working with here is that organizing tends to um, be by definition, a little bit more fluid. Certainly formal organizations can engage in organizing. Um, That happens with social movement organizations, advocacy organizations all the time, but organizing, um, tends to be active, it tends to be fluid, it tends to reflect either like a particular campaign, a particular issue, a particular moment. And so organizing partners may come in and out, they may join, they may quit. Um, They're 
organizing can be pretty unwieldy and hard to handle. Um, it can also be uh, less politically restrained. It can also be more politically restrained. But I guess the, the distinction that we really wanted to point out there is that formal organizations tend to um, face the kinds of restrictions that uh, mutes their work a little bit. Um, this is particularly true for public organizations, but it's certainly true for nonprofits as well. Um, organizing and organizing coalitions are sometimes harder to get a handle on because they're so broad, uh, but they tend to face, face sort of fewer of the same restrictions that formal organizations do. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Stephanie, yeah, did you and, want to add anything? Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, I was just asking if you wanted to add anything to that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so the one thing I'll add, Megan did a wonderful job of explaining that. I think maybe one of the common threads among the different organizations or community groups that we've looked at is that they are often organized in, in some official way. There's a spectrum, of course, but regardless of that, they're deeply intersectional typically. And so they've made themselves so that they're fairly nimble, right? They're, they're sometimes these massive community groups or organizations that have been around for a while, or have, but they often have multiple parts or multiple arms that are working on different things and are constantly organizing in the direction of issues that community might bring to the fore as being really important. And what that community is varies from case to case, but they're all deeply intersectional and that allows them to have the self-awareness and self-reflection, I think, or reflexivity to be nimble in how they approach these issues and are constantly thinking about it from an organizing perspective as well, I would argue. Okay. So I think we've given our, our listeners a good idea of what they're in store for uh, with this book. And I don't want to keep you both too much longer. So let's move on to our traditional ending question of what are you working on next? I can, I can start on that one. Um, so I, I'm continuing to work on um, trying to focus on these spaces of building more distributive and regenerative systems. Um, I think it's a, it's a really important complement to environmental sociology work that I do, for example, that tends, like I said before, to focus on, focus on some of the big problems, enormous power differentials, um, especially when we look at the power of uh, companies versus communities, right? Um, but definitely continuing in that direction. And I work and I co-founded and co-direct the Center for Environmental Justice at CSU. And so through that work and through some other um, interdisciplinary work I do, we're trying to build community partnerships as well. I have the opportunity to do a little bit more engagement and outreach and things like that because of because of being part of that center. And um, watching that grow has been, has been very exciting. I also, though, continue to do work on um, areas that deal with extraction, deal with extractive economies, uh, industrial contamination and waste, and the ways in which environmental deregulation have really impacted people's daily lives and their health and well-being. So for example, I'm working on a project looking at the Suncor oil refinery, which is one of the largest polluters in the state of Colorado. And it is in Commerce City, which is one of the most polluted zip codes in the nation. They've had decades of layered undesirable land uses, right? And so we are very fortunate. I'm fortunate to help run the social science component of the study that is 
deeply community-based. It is being led by Cultivando, uh, an environmental justice and um, community-based Latinx organization in Commerce City. And we are, um, they are kind of letting us ask questions of community, right? And and we're trying to capture what are the impacts of um, living near this enormous facility that has had several really dangerous, noxious releases in the past couple of years in terms of pollution and effluents that are falling on neighborhoods, kids are getting asthma, um, those sorts of things. And so we are trying to capture those stories and embed them within the bigger sociological framework of environmental justice, environmental health outcomes, and like I said, the long-term impacts of environmental deregulation on other economic livelihoods and people's daily lives, and especially the health and well-being of children and elderly populations. So um, that's kind of where where I'm focused for the next little while. Um, and like Stephanie, I have a couple of irons in the fire. I, uh, I, I study public organizations um, for reasons that I think are apparent in the framework of our book, because public organizations are a uh, Universal-ish framework that um, that that helps us govern um, our communal lands and our communal values, and I think it's really important to understand how they work. So, um, so I have been working. I have a couple of projects on public organizations. My uh, my first book in 2020 was um, was about public voluntary organizations. So I'm working on that. I have something going, um, looking at the great resignation and, or sometimes they're calling it the great reshuffle, but this like larger phenomenon of how people are quitting their jobs in the aftermath of COVID. Um, but looking specifically at the resonance of the reasons that people are giving for quitting their jobs and some like downshifting of the economy, which is an, an idea that comes from environmental sociology. So it's, it's looking at the extent to which, um, uh, some of these COVID-induced changes may actually be resonant with the downshifting movement, whether or not that's intentional. Um, I am also a state senator in Rhode Island, and so I have uh, been just like working on some emergent ideas about how linking um, scholars and policymakers in more sustainable ways, wh- what that could look like, um, because there is a, a significant move um, in a lot of the social sciences, and particularly in my institution, which is awesome, uh, towards applied knowledge. Um, and yet what that looks like and how we do it is still very much emergent. And there are some good models for how to do it and lots of lots of trial and error along the way. So um, I'm putting putting my shoulder behind that one as well. All right. Well, those all sound like really exciting projects. We'll definitely be looking forward to seeing what uh, comes of all of them. So thank you both so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. You just heard a conversation with Stephanie A. Malin and Megan Elizabeth Coleman, authors of Building Something Better, Environmental Crises and the Promise of Community Change, published this year by Rutgers University Press.